Hello and welcome to Interval, the Norwich Theatre Royal podcast. With a new episode releasing each month, this show will bring you exclusive news, views, interviews and behind-the-scenes content. We'll have the latest information for shows and events at Norwich Theatre Royal, Norwich Playhouse and our Learning and Participation Centre, Stage 2. If you're interested in the performing arts in Norfolk, then this is the podcast for you. In this month's episode, we're celebrating the return of Creative Pride for 2019. We chatted to Ty Jeffries, the brains behind the comic cabaret character, Miss Hope Springs. We also spoke to Alexis Gregory, who will be performing his verbatim play, Riot Act, which helps chronicle 50 years of LGBTQ history. Plus, we have a new episode of Stages of My Life, as the pub landlord, Al Murray, joined us before his sold-out show on Sunday the 16th of June. First, though, after the success of last year's event, Creative Pride returns for 2019. From workshops to productions, there are a number of exciting events happening throughout July to link in with Pride season across our three spaces. Over at Norwich Playhouse, Miss Hope Springs will be joining us direct from her caravan on the Kent coast. We spoke to Ty Jeffries, the alter ego of the showbiz diva, about his night of toe-tapping show tunes and finger-snapping pop and some heart-wrenching torch songs. Welcome to the carnival I joined the circus long ago I don't know how to do real life But I can sure put on a show Welcome to the carnival I always love to play with fire Without a safety net beneath I used to dance upon a wire Smoke and mirrors hide the fact Behind the laughter there's a twist Without my makeup on I'm frightened That I don't exist Welcome to the carnival Don't you love a marching band? Life's a harlequin parade That turns to sawdust in your hand Welcome to the carnival Even clowns grow old in time Grow jaded with their faded act As I have now become with mine But if you really want me to I'll fetch my feathers and my smile And in the half-light act out happy ending get to experience an evening of musical comedy cabaret. Um, Miss Hope Springs is a fully formed character with uh, a complete backstory going back to the early 60s or 70s, as she will only admit to the 70s. (laughs) Um, And so uh, she's sort of, she's not a has-been, she's a never-was. She, she's from an, you know, an era in show business which is, is gone now. Um, well, there were lounge acts. We never really had them in England, but the, the staple of, of uh, a night out in the States is, is you know, piano bars. Um, and often there'll be somebody, a glamorous older woman playing the piano that probably started out 25 years earlier with, hopes of being the new Debbie Reynolds 
um, but it never quite happened. So Miss Hope Springs is, is one of those people. She she's a yeah she's a she's a never was as opposed to a has been poor thing. It will be a perfect show for people who love that particular era because I'm sure they'll be able to identify with her story and I'm, I'm guessing she'll be name dropping some of the people that she knew and that kind of thing as well. Yes, I mean the thing is it crosses because she's a sort of very clearly drawn comedy character and in a way she's a, a bit of a sad clown like maybe Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton the sort of musical version um, I often say she's a bit like Lassie as well so she, she'll turn up and do her show and then she she packs that suitcase of dreams and goes off again on to her next her next gig it is of an era but it, it crosses all boundaries I mean you know that had four years from the age of 18 up to the age of 80, and um, people of every persuasion. Um, yeah, it's just a really, uh, it's sort of in the vein, I suppose, of female impersonations, say, uh, like Barry Humphreys did with Dame Edna and Paula Grady did with Lily Savage. It's character-based comedy. I always loved uh, old movies, so from the age of sort of six, seven, I used to watch Joan Crawford and Garbo and Dietrich and, and Betty Davis and Judy Garland and all those great Hollywood musicals of, of the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, but now, in a way, I think Miss Hope Springs is is a sort of um, a muse for me. So I write for her and I do, I mean, I, I create all my work for her to perform, so she's she's my inspiration and my muse. It's just like a perfect template, uh, an interface for me to express myself as an as an artist, as a as a composer and lyricist, and actor. Uh, and people warm to her, I think, because uh, as the name sort of suggests, uh, even though she hasn't made it at this point in her life, she's still aspiring. And I think people respond to that. Well, absolutely. I guess we can all identify a bit with that because you're you're not see you're seeing her. Uh, it's a cliche, but what and all, you know, you're seeing the real person rather than this, you know, the facade that that we see so that's, much in showbiz as well. That's absolutely right. So she, in the moment while I'm performing and and, and I, you know, I do an array of original songs throughout the show, and interspersed with with stories that I tell about her life and she's very self-depreciating it's not an act where she's someone who picks on people in the audience but um, unless they heckle her of course <laughs> then, then all bets are off <laughs> yeah she's she's the sort of she's putting on the show but at the same time she's relating to the audience what's going on behind the scenes with her and her life and uh, you know living as she does with her husband Irving and his close personal hairdresser pal <laughs> Carlos in a camper van in Dungeness. Yes. Um, so her life is not quite how she planned it. And I mean, you, I was reading about you on your side. Your life is fascinating as well. I mean, um, growing up in that, uh, as a child in your sort of formative years, obviously your father was Lionel Jeffries and I was loving the story about Sir John Mills was teaching you jazz chords and, uh, you know, Roald Dahl being around. That sort of I mean, it's, what was it like for you? Was it, I guess it was just normal because you didn't have anything to, to compare it to with all these people around. Yeah. It really was, it was 
it was no normal for me. Uh, I mean, Fred Astaire coming to the house and staying the weekend, getting you know, serving the sausage rolls to uh, Lee Remick on the sofa. Um, gosh, I came home one day and the Bee Gees and Lulu were having tea in the sitting room. <laughs> it, it's uh, you know, it's extraordinary, but of course it was my childhood and I didn't know anything else so it was to some extent normal but unlike a lot of people who grew up in show business I'm just tremendously starstruck <laughs> so I was always in awe of these people you know New Kermay came to the house Albert Finney's, with Albert Finney when they were, they were married and you know, she starred in I think it was La Dolce Vita with Fellini you know it's extraordinary to meet these incredible people um, uh, yeah, very lucky, and I think it's informed my work because mm. I know a lot about show business. So they say write about what you know. I know about show business, having grown up in it and worked in it as a songwriter since I was since I had my first publication deal when I was like 15. Um, I was really interested in that. Tell me a bit about that. That's very young to be offered a, a publishing deal and, and yes. event of the business in your own right. Yes. Uh, well, that was because my father, uh, as you said, Lionel Jeffries, was, uh, he made a movie called uh, Wombling Fruit. No, it wasn't Wombling Fruit. It was The Water Babies. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, and uh, they were original songs in it, and they were written by Bill Martin and Phil Coulter who wrote Pop It On A String and Boom Bang A Bang, those Eurovision hits from the 60s. They heard my me, they heard me playing and singing and were interested in in signing me up. Uh, but I never had, you know, sadly never had any big hits. I had lots of, almost, a bit like Miss Hope Springs myself, you know, but um, it wasn't until I created Miss Hope Springs, which is, gosh, now eight years ago, uh, that... Uh, I started having some real success myself, um, having played the piano and song in restaurants and like Langham's Brasserie and the Ritz and the Roof Garden in Kensington. Um, I sort of paid my dues that way. Mm. But I guess, wasn't that quite important to you to do that as well? Because so often you hear about people who kind of springboard in because of, of their parents and who they are. Just this brief time I've spoken to you, you were very, you seemed very much about wanting sort of, the night that makes you sound patronising, work your way from the ground up and, and learn the business in your own right as well. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I came at it from a very secure, secure I can't say the word, secure, <laughs> Um because I I, I I wanted to go to drama school, but I, I my parents wouldn't let me, to be honest. They didn't want me going down that road. Uh, but I did go to music school. And, and then I came at performing from being a musician. So I've, I've gone, I've, I've forged my own path. Of course, it's much more difficult to to cut your way through virgin territory because there's really nobody doing what I do and how I do it. There isn't a precedent set. Uh, it's so different. And and 2019 is very exciting. I mean, uh, obviously, we're very excited to have you coming to Norwich, but also Edinburgh Fringe as well. Which is yes, uh, that's a big, that's a full run in Edinburgh. So, so really, this is the show that I'm taking up to Edinburgh is coming to Norwich first, uh, sort of um, the last, the last, uh, the last stop before I head up to Edinburgh with uh, my new show, It's Miss Hope Springs, 
which really is a it's it's the Mid Spring story from beginning to to where we are now. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. He promised me a kitten and a ball of string. Said I could have a pony and a circus ring. A big expensive mansion with a servant swing. The devil made me do that thing, that bad thing. The devil made me do that key change. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. Promised me a kitten and a ball of string. Said I could have a pony and a circus swing. A big expensive mansion with a servant swing. The devil made me do that thing. Miss Hope Springs, who will be at Norwich Playhouse on Friday the 12th of July. Also at the Playhouse as part of the season will be Susie Ruffle, who brings her critically acclaimed show Nocturnal there on July 13th. She's proved incredibly popular. There's already limited availability. Stage two will host the return of Alexis Gregory. He was last here directing Safe, the moving true stories of young people with gender identity issues who were helped by the Albert Kennedy Trust. This time around, he stars in his own one-man show, Riot Act, which tracks 50 years of LGBTQ history through the lives of three key people. He tells us more about what's in store. Alexis, take me right back to the beginning uh, of the Riot Act story. Where did the idea come from? Why did you want to sort of explore the history of, of LGBT history in this way? Well, I've always been interested in uh, LGBT lives and our recent history especially. And I say recent history because it's really not that long ago, even when you think about the Stonewall Riots, which was 50 years ago. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, um, you know, the, the changes that have happened even in 50 years, never mind the last 15, they're quite astonishing. But this part, this play really came off the back of my previous uh, verbatim piece called Safe, which of course I brought to Norwich Theatre Royal, and I created that piece about homeless and at-risk LGBT youth, and then um, a wonderful man who I met about uh, around 2007 got in touch with me from LA, Michael Anthony Nosey, and he's one of the only remaining Stonewall survivors, and I'd love to share my story with you so that you can use it as the basis for a show. Wow. I thought, wow, okay, exactly. <laughs> I, um, 
absolutely took him up on that offer and really that was the start of the journey so a lot of it is really from Michael's initial initial idea which um, ignited the idea for me. And in terms of the sort of creative process, you, you sat down and chatted to Michael and Lavinia and Paul in, in quite a lot of detail. Did you really sort of get inside their, their minds and understand what mm. they've been through? Yeah, we spent hours talking and chatting and I was interviewing the guys and as I was interviewing them, I was really shaping the head in my play as well. So I was saying, tell me more about that or go back or I don't understand that or that's really interesting or that's really contradictory or oh, I've never heard it explained that way before, tell me more. And so we really went on a journey together and yeah, I interviewed Michael over Facebook video chat because he's in LA now and then I met up with Lavinia and Paul and yeah, the interviews were extraordinary and the guys were so brave and so open but we really went deep about so many different things and so many different aspects of their lives came out. Essentially, it's a show about Michael's story, which is about the Stonewall riots, Lavinia's story, which is about radical drag in 1970s London, and Paul's story, which is about 1990s AIDS activism. But we ended up exploring so much more. And each story, each character you follow into 2019. So I got way more than I bargained for. And each story was way more expansive and way more epic than I could have imagined. The hard part was, of course, deciding what to cut out. That I was, was going to ask about that. the editing process in um, Vertical. Mm. It must have been really tricky to pull out the key things. Yeah, I had to be quite brutal at points and decide what am I going to use, where does this story start. There's so many fascinating bits about Paul being a teenager, for example, but I, you know, the first line of his monologue is about when he hears about this new virus, which, of course, we know went on to be called AIDS. Um, so I had to go right in there with his story. I only had 20 minutes per guy and uh, you'll see it's a roller coaster journey for each story and it's a bit of a roller coaster when you put the three pieces together as well. So they're self contained but you will also see how they all fit together and they explain where the queer community is in twenty nineteen and what brought us here and it explains what many of us are experiencing and what I think we're consciously and subconsciously responding to as well. Yeah, well, it's very, very topical at the moment. We've seen what's happened mm. in recent weeks with uh, sort of backlash against different elements mm. of queer culture, particularly. Mm. Is it, are you a bit nervous exploring this, or do you think it's really important that we get this, this message out? I'm not nervous at all, but I absolutely think, yes, it's even more important now. You know, we've had all these advances, and this is something we explore in the play, in fact. When I interviewed Paul two years ago, he said something along the lines of, we've had these advances, you know, these amazing advances, but the tide's going to turn. I can feel it. And that felt quite powerful and prophetic two years ago. And now you can imagine when I say it, it takes on a whole new meaning. So the play feels really current. And, yeah, we've had these advances, but some people don't like that. And this is when the problems start and we're seeing it with lots of minority groups and there's statistical rising hate crime against members of the LGBT community. Those figures have just been released in the last few days and hate crimes are generally rising across the UK anyway. So we're living in very reactionary times and it's scary but you just have to keep going. And I guess work like this is so important equally to turn it on its side to show people that the struggle that the LGBT community has gone through and that there is a, a place mm. for it and that we shouldn't be marginalised and, and put into a corner. Mm. It's, it's, the, the show is really about three men who fought mm. for our rights and in some ways they're 
accidental activist, Michael, my Stonewall character, was 17 years old and found himself in the middle of the Stonewall riots by accident on his first night in New York. Lavinia, the drag artist, talks about visibility and says, maybe this is my part in the movement, being out there, challenging the norms, doing so for four decades. And then you have someone like Paul who laid down in the middle of the street to, to block traffic to draw attention towards injustices that people with HIV and AIDS were facing and the, the awful treatment they were receiving in the early days of the virus. So they're really extraordinary lives that have been shared with me that have shaped where we are now. I have to also have to say the play is incredibly funny. It's very outrageous, very naughty, it's very cheeky. The characters do not hold back. You will be shocked one minute, laughing the next, and <laughs> hopefully crying the moment after that. You, the characters are so painfully honest, but it's also painfully funny as well. So all of my work includes humour. So it, it, it's a real journey that you go on if, if you come and see this show with us. I guess there's a responsibility on your part because you're playing real people. What, what sort of mm. feedback have you had from the likes of Lavinia and Paul? Um, I've had an amazing response. Michael has never seen the play because he's in L.A., but he's desperate to come over here and see it. And I said, I will make sure if you get over here that I will do a performance for you, even if it's in my living room <laughs> one day in front of the fireplace. Lovely. You will see this show. And Lavinia and Paul have been really supportive. They're watching me play them, but not play them as well. So I've changed some of their voices, some elements of them I have kept. I'm not completely repeating the words in the way that they said them in the interviews to me. I'm, I, you know, I become an actor at that point and have the words on the page and reinterpret them in my own way and hit different dramatic notes throughout each monologue. So their words are completely reshaped. So in a way, that's even braver because they've given me their lives and it's got their names all over it, but I, I'm kind of running with it and, you know, reshaping, remixing, re-editing. Michael, Lavinia and Paul have all been fantastic throughout. My final question, which I always ask, is people are listening to this and they're still waving a little bit and thinking, oh, I don't know if we're coming to see right actors for me. What would you say to them if they're just on the cusp and not quite sure about whether or not to come along and see the, the play? I would say come, enjoy the stories, come learn, come laugh, hopefully be moved, and come and explore perhaps lives that you're not familiar with. Whether you're straight or part of the queer community, there's a lot of people who come up to you afterwards and they say, I didn't know that happened, I've never heard it explained in that way, I knew nothing about that, and it's a peek into another world, and it's a wild trip. I stand on one spot for one hour, mostly, and I play these three characters. We cover six decades of recent history, and we go slap bang into the middle of 2019. I can pretty much guarantee you will not be bored. <laughs> if you I can say that quite confidently and quite boldly. It's wild. It's like watching a gay seance, and I'm playing all these different characters. So uh, come and see it, and and have some fun and celebrate Pride and celebrate the Stonewall 50th anniversary with us. Stage 2 also hosts an evening with popular songwriter Sue Lane on July 23rd. And don't forget the Adnams Bar at Norwich Theatre Royal is the perfect vantage point to enjoy the Pride Parade itself on July the 27th. And finally, we're delighted to present our next edition of Stages of My Life. Before his sold-out performance, we were joined by the hilarious Al Murray, from his comic hero, Steve Martin, to his love for Matcham theatres, we learnt more about the man behind the pub landlord. Al, welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. 
Wimborne, Lowestoft, and now Norwich. Yes, yeah, don't get me started on tour routing. Um, <laughs> Wimborne to Lowestoft is further than you might think. Yeah. Um, it's a very long way. We've had, we've had two ludicrous um, long legs on this tour. I mean, that one, I suppose, is broken. I live in London, so that one was broken up by London. But um, I've got white line fever at the moment. I'm, I'm really fed up with being in the car. But there you go. What can you do? But pleasure to be here in Norwich. Oh, yeah. And it's always... Uh, and we were saying when we got here how much I like th playing this theatre and um, uh, what fun we always have at the Theatre also. And thank you for joining us just before you go on stage. That's right. Now, are you ready for these questions? You, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. Yeah. Okay, so the first one, mm. stage presence. Yes. Who or what has been your greatest influence in the performing arts? Oh, gosh, that's a difficult question. Um, uh, but I think the first person who really struck me um, uh, as a performer, when I was, when I was um, 19 is when I started getting in, interested in actually doing comedy because I didn't know I didn't know you could I didn't know it didn't exist and it's not like now where there are courses and you can study at uni and all that sort of thing it just it just didn't it didn't there were people on the telly who did it but they had those jobs it didn't feel like a thing you could do and I didn't know about the old comedy circuit and all that sort of thing but the person who I really really got into when I was kind of 19 and I watched his video over and over and over again was Steve Martin because um, he was a big film star he'd made Roxanne, I think, in like 1986, and it was a massive hit. And he'd done his sort of odder films before that, and that was his sort of breakout big romantic comedy. So he'd done Man With Two Brains, and The Jerk was his first movie, and all that sort of stuff. But there's a video of him doing stand-up at the Hollywood Bowl, live at the Hollywood Bowl, 1979 or 77, which is just before he gave up stand-up. And there's just something really, really electric about um, his performance and, and his clearly his approach to performance and he's written about it since and it's all really 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 interesting so i think steve martin was the sort of proper like a proper light bulb for me of how you could approach stand up and worry think about how you use your whole body in the performance and not just i'm just holding a mic like this and talk um uh and so i'd yeah steve martin i'd say and you're, you're someone that, you know, you use a lot of mediums as well. You're, yeah. you're a musician too. Yeah. And Steve Martin's got that kind of... Well, yes, yeah. And he, yeah, he's a, he's a banjo player or a banjo lele or whatever. You know, banjo players or ukulele players always get really angry if you get the name of their instrument wrong. Um, and I saw him actually about, well, but it was quite a while ago now, about eight years ago when he brought the, um, that bluegrass band he had over, saw him at Hammersmith Apollo and... Um, you know, I'll never got, I never will have got to see him do stand up, but to see him perform, and it was, it was, he was so funny because his exactitude with words is really interesting, and and he's also just his sort of timing is really superb. But he doesn't, it's not just how he speaks; everything about him and is, is encapsulated in his timing. So, I have seen him live, you know, kind of. So, uh, which was a, that was a wonderful thing. Bucket list moment. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. And I think, I think having heroes when you're into performing and all that sort of thing is actually really um, healthy and really good for you. And having people, I mean, obviously what you don't do is copy them, but, but, but think about what they're doing and why they're doing it and how they've arrived at it and think about its ancestry and all that sort of thing and tradi the tradition it's from and all that sort of thing. And, and uh, having, having heroes is fine, I think, you know, is, is cool. Okay, so the next question. Yeah. All the world's a stage. Yes. What has been your favourite place to perform? Oh, well, apart from Norwich Theatre Royal. Apart from Norwich uh, Theatre um, Royal, thank um, you. Thank you for that. Um, there are um, 
there are, there's a theatrical art architect, a guy called Frank Matcham. People who know about theatres know who Frank Matcham is. Matchless Matcham. And there, there's, I think, a dozen, I can never remember how many theatres it is in the UK that he built. And he obviously reached a point where he came up with what we'd call an algorithm um, for the perfect proportions for a room. And there's several, there's, you know, um, uh, there's the King's Theatre in Glasgow. It's really big. It's like a 2,000-seater. But it works, in, it works as a performer. You stand in the same place in the, on the stage as you do in... Oh, God, where's the other... The, my mind's gone blank. It's where the others are. But in the other ones that are different sizes and they work exactly the same way. Everyone can see, everyone can hear you. And so it's theatres like that. But the very best place to play is uh, Leeds City Varieties, which is, uh, music, which is a music hall from the uh, Victorian era that's been, you know, that got saved by English heritage. And the good old days used to be on there, which is a TV programme in the 70s where they, would, where they would do music hall. And that, f for what I do, I mean, I can't speak for anyone else, for what I do, that is the absolute perfect environment. Um, the stage isn't very large. It's quite a, quite, a, quite a rake on it as well. So you're always feeling like you're being pitched into the audience. And there's, there's, you know, there's a box there, and you can go over and talk to the people in the box like that, rather than in a normal theatre where the box would be all the way over there. And it's, there's just something about it and the sort of heat of the room and the energy of the room for, a, for someone who does what I do, it's like a sort of perfect feedback loop. So I'd say that's probably my favourite place to play. Or Bath Theatre Rather, Brighton Theatre Rather is a matching theatre. They're, they're just, it's, the Victorians really, really had it figured out. And, you know, and it's a time before amplified music or amplified speech. They, you know, they, so they had to figure it out. They had to figure out how you stood in the middle could be heard right at the back. And it, it's that sort of intimacy that's really exciting. Okay, so the next question, stage fright. <laughs> what has been the toughest moment of your career? Um, easily the toughest moment of my career. It was the third Royal Variety performance I did where I'd lost my voice. Ah. And um, you can't pull out of that show because it's sort of like, it, it, it's sort of like, um, you know, when they, when they launch a ship and they, they, let, they let go of the chocks or whatever hold, that's holding the ship in place and it comes down the slipway. And you're, you know, once they've let the thing go, there's no, they can't, because the comics all perform in front of tabs. So that they're setting up, they're striking whatever was on before and right. they're setting up whatever's on next. So, you know, they're striking, I don't know, um, uh, 42nd Street and they're setting Bon Jovi or whatever. And you're in front of tabs and that's the job of the comics. And I've done it twice before and it had gone really, really, really well. But this third time, it was in Liverpool and um, I lost my voice. And I came on talking about this and it was a disaster. And, um, and a really, really horrible experience. And, um, uh, it, you know, and I, well, I did bad, I went badly. It was, it was no good, you know, it was no good. It's not one of those gigs where you die and you go, well, I didn't do anything wrong. It was, it was no good. I was no good, it was no good. And, and um, it's one of those ones where you just, you're just caught in the crosshairs of the bloody thing. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. And the Queen's over there, you know, it's quite, so that, that I would, hands down, did you get any feedback on that? Or no, you? not really. You know, people often going, "Oh, you know, bad luck, mate." But, 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 you know, what tends to happen if someone has a bad one at a gig like those, everyone avoids them. It's sort of like it's like the stink of failures. <laughs> to has to be has to be. You have to keep your distance. It's about ten years ago that I think, maybe yeah, I think it was ten years ago, and it was all it was awful. It was awful at the time, 
Awful in the afternoon in the anticipation because my voice was getting worse and worse. And I thought, maybe I'll be all right, you know, gargling manuka honey and steaming and everything. Maybe I'll be okay. And I wasn't. And, uh, and there you go. Okay. So the next question. Yeah. Centre stage. Yes. What has been the moment that you feel defines you as an artist? Oh, God. That's really difficult. Um, I, there was a moment, there was a show, because uh, uh, I did four Edinburgh runs when I, when I came up with the Pub Landlord, and I got nominated for the Parrot Award each time. And the first show was like me just trying an hour of the character and it worked. So like, you know, tick that box, job done. The second one was like, right, how do I write a fresh hour and not just an hour of material that I've been doing in comedy clubs all cobbled together and sat down and wrote a show and that worked. And then you're thinking, right, this really does, this really does work, right? And I can write for this, it's going places. And the third show um, was I sort of built on what I'd done in the third one and it was getting more and more complex and I was really aware. And, and ver, you know, very often we're writing, um, David Chase of The Sopranos, he, a guy created The Sopranos, he says, people go, oh, you put that in there because of this and all that. And he goes, no, very often you're in the writer's room and it's, it's just the, it's the idea you've got. You've, you've got to write a program, you've got to write a thing and that's the, that's the idea you've got, so you're stuck with it. It's not that you're trying to say this, you've got, anyone's got, it's the, you know, that there's a better idea you could have used. Because if you'd had a better idea, you would have used it. And this, the third of these four Edinburgh shows was very much complicated because I'd sort of, I was wearing my brains on my sleeve in the, in the storytelling and all that sort of thing. And then the fourth one, I thought, God, I went to a lot of trouble last year. Just simplify the whole thing. Strip it right back down. What are the core ideas at work in here and how do you make them speak? You know, strip it out, make it simpler. Keep it simple, stupid, that idea, the kiss. And that was the best show I'd ever written by a long way. And this, the, the show that won the Perrier Award for what it was worth. But that, that was the big, a big revelation for me, was, was that very often the smartest thing to do is to not worry about being smart. And that this, if you've got a direct, simple idea, be simply direct with it. And all those things. And, and, and the the rest will come and, uh, and you know, I was sort of worrying about, before that I'd been very much worrying about what, your peer, what my peers thought and all that sort of thing, you know, because there were, there were lots of really ambitious, clever people writing in, my, the, in the 90s doing stand-up and coming up with their own voice. So you want to be part of that and you want to push at that. And then I realised that actually that was causing me loads of problems <laughs> and it would be simpler to be simple because the characters are it's a very simple character really it's a very very simple idea so deliver it simply and that then led so i think 99 was the year i had a proper light bulb about that and it all got easier after that and writing it got much much easier and and uh, adding and extending and sitting down and writing a new show just became much more sort of natural um, so I think that's probably the, that's probably the, I think that's the moment you're asking me about, but I don't know. <laughs> and I, I just wanted to ask, do you feel like the character has evolved at all over the years? Or do you think that the environment in which surrounds the character has changed? Uh, both, both. I mean, what, 10 years ago, um, we were doing this talk show on ITV. And so suddenly you're, before that I'd done a sitcom on um, Sky. Um, so you're not exposed to the mainstream at all. And also what we were trying to do with that was very much against the grain at the time of stuff like The Office, which was single camera and very like low key. You know, we were trying to make a big broad audience sitcom. And, but it was 
on Sky, so you know, no, no one saw it, but it didn't get the kind of exposure that doing a thing on the Saturday, Friday, Saturday on ITV, massive exposure. So suddenly you've got how people are seeing the character. They're making up their own minds about what you're doing. There's nothing you can do about that, right? Which is, I think, fun anyway, and, and then persuading them of what you're doing by them coming and see you live, you know? Because we suddenly had a load more people coming to see me live. So what you have to do with the character is take that on board. So what I've done with the characters, he's, he's aware that he's like famous. He's aware that people have come to see him. He's setting up his stall as the bloke with the common sense solutions to things, rather than the guy just telling you that he has. Because I think, you, you, you know, uh, and also at the moment, we're very much in an age where there's all these people telling us they have simple solutions to everything. So it sort of fits. And the, 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 the big, the tour we did in 2009, I very much made it him going, don't worry, I'm, I've got, you know, don't panic, help's here, the answers are here. And that's the thing that really evolved, has evolved with the character in the last 10 years. And, you know, and ended up with me running for parliament in 2015 in character, because that's the extension of that idea. Um, and yeah, so the, so the, the character has evolved and the surroundings have changed. So the surroundings are you're better known, you've got a bigger audience, you've got more, pe more people misunderstanding <laughs> what you're doing, more people understanding what you're doing in equal measure. And the misunderstanding, um, rather than being a thing that's ever bothered me, always strikes me as an opportunity for mischief, as an opportunity, is another joke. Um, and you're meant to, comics are meant to be agents of misrule and confusion and mischief and all that, I, I think. So I don't kind of mind if people don't know, don't understand what's going on or get the wrong end of the stick, that's fine, you know. Um, so yeah, it's that, there's been this two pieces of evolution and I actually think that the making him know he's famous is a good reaction to the, to the change in the audience uh, uh, environment. You know, you, 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 but I've, yeah, I think that, that's it really. I mean, it's, but the last thing is I've really worked on him knowing that he's, knowing that he's known. Because otherwise, what's going on in the theatre is sort of bogus. Um, I mean, I know I'm in character, I know it's bogus, but, but you, you've got to have him react honestly to the situation, if you see what I mean. Absolutely. Okay, so the next question. Mm. Stagehand, what piece of advice would you give somebody wanting to pursue a career like yours? Oh, um, that's pretty simple. If you want to be a stand-up comic, You've got the only pl the only place you can learn um, how to be a stand-up comic is stage time. Um, that's why I got into it. That's why I, I got into stand-up because I'd done a lot of acting at school. I wanted to perform. Th thought I wanted to act really. Um, and when I got to university, I knew that if I went for an audition <laughs> and failed the audition, right, I, my ego wouldn't be able to cope with it because it would be an audition for a student director who knew as little as me, right? Because I knew I knew nothing and I'd think well you know nothing as well could cope with the teacher not casting me in a thing but I could cope with the that with authority in that situation but not with someone not with one of, one of my peers because I knew I knew <laughs> so stand up then but the difference with stand up is you you get in front of an audience and you you either pass or fail the audition then then and there there's no there's no interface um uh and there was a scene at Oxford at uni where you could just get in front of an audience and, and do it. And then you'd go away and you'd write a sketch for next week and you get in front of an audience and do it. And that's, that's why I think in the end, the best advice is to stage time. So if you want to be a comic, the best way to get stage time is to compare, because no one wants to compare. 
And if you're comparing, you open the show, you're on in the middle, um, you're on near the end, and then you close the show. So you get to experience all four um, versions of what comics have to deal with, the, you know, opening, closing, and being on in the middle, and all those things. So you have to deal with, you have to manage the audience properly, which all comedians in the end have to do. And you have to, you have to make it feel like tonight's the night, which again is a thing stand-ups in the end have to grasp as a thing they have to do. So that's what I'd suggest. And write, write everything down, save everything. Write, write and save absolutely everything that comes into your head because you never know. You never know that you might find a way of, a joke you wrote five years ago, you might go back, look at it and find a way of making it work once you've figured out how to perform. Because you've two, usually you've two voices, your writing voice and your performing voice and what you need is to get them to coincide. And there's only one, if, if the only way to get your performing voice together is stage time, then the only way to get your writing voice together is writing time. And this is a writing job principally. You spend much more time writing stand-up than you do performing it, um, in, in, in my experience. And I sort of became obsessive about writing at one point and treated it as a, really treated it as a muscle. And I got, got you know, I'd write to a friend and say, give me a dozen subjects you want me to talk about on stage and, I'd, I'd, and then I'd write a dozen things for each of the dozen and then you'd throw it all out, but you've done the exercise, you've done the work. So write and stage time. Okay. And the final question. Yep. The next stage. Mm -hmm. What does the future hold for Al Murray? <laughs> well, that's a, good, that's a funny question. Um, I ran into Jimmy Carr once and we were comparing notes about... Um, uh, interviews and stuff and he says people always say well what next and and he says this <laughs> the, more of this the same that that's what's next you know i'm going to carry on i'm, you know, I'm not going to i don't i'm not going to retrain as a physio or something <laughs> this um uh, so this basically and i but i've got lots of other things going on so this this tour runs to the to the um kind of middle of july and then i think we're going back out in the autumn again which will probably flip over into the new year. Although this show is very event sensitive because a lot of it's about um, the B word, unfortunately. So what happens in October will affect what's in the, what's the content, but that's all right. Um, I have, uh, I'm going to Edinburgh, so the Fringe. I have a band, so I'm playing music um, and we've got more of that in the autumn. And I have, uh, I've got a company that makes drum kits and drums and so that, to, to sort of keep an eye on. So lots lots and lots of different things and some telly in the, you know, always telly in the pipeline that you can't talk about because if it doesn't happen, you look like an idiot. <laughs> okay, so that is the end of those questions. How did you find them? Oh, that's all, all pretty straightforward, yeah. I mean, it's funny because because sometimes things evolve rather than there's a crystalline moment. Um, uh, and, and very often where you are now wouldn't be as it is without all the all those things, but there isn't necessarily, I, you know, I couldn't tell you for sure the moment where, I, I mean, there's a moment where you get in a taxi as a comic and you feel you can say to the cab driver that you're a comedian, right? And that, that, that sort of, that is, I always think that's the moment, you know, I imagine actors have the same thing as well, that you for a very long time you aren't getting work or you aren't getting, no one notices. And you do want to be noticed, you do want to be recognised, you do want to pop, break through. So I guess it's the moment you can look a cab driver in the eye and say you're a comedian <laughs> is the moment. Wonderful, thank you. And just before you go, obviously we can't, I'm afraid we can't talk about tonight's performance mm. at Norwich Theatre Royal because one, when people see this, it'll be gone. Yes. And two, it's sold out. Yes. But if people do want more 
of Al in their lives. Yes. Um, where well, can they go? Um, oh, God, where are we next week? Uh, Birmingham, Stoke, Cheltenham. That's what we're doing next week. We've got three shows in Cheltenham. We've got matinee on Saturday in Cheltenham next week. And then I can't remember where we are the week after that because I don't, I tend not to remember the schedule because it makes me uh, miserable. <laughs> <laughs> not the shows, just the travel. It's the travel really, it's really doing my head in at the moment. Well, Al, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. That's the end of our show this month. A big thanks to Ty Jeffries, Alexis Gregory and Al Murray. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Acast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Let us know what you liked and what you want to hear in future episodes. Thank you very much for listening to Interval, the Norwich Theatre Royal podcast. <laughs>